Speech Pathology Australia acknowledged the traditional custodians of the lands, seas and waters throughout Australia and pay respect to Elders past, present and future. We recognise that the health and social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are grounded in continued connection to culture, country, language and community and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week we showcase a conversation with inspiring and influential people who are advancing practice in one of the many and varied areas of speech pathology. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi, it's Annika. Welcome to this week's Speak Up Conversation. I am always excited to chat to all our podcast guests. There have been so many interesting and inspiring people that I've been so privileged to speak with. Sometimes, however, I do have to pinch myself in this job. I'm so lucky with who I get to chat to, just like today. Today, I am chatting with international speech pathology royalty, Professor Gail Gillen. Gail is the founding director of the Child Wellbeing Research Institute at the University of Canterbury in Christchurch, New Zealand. She has received life membership with the New Zealand Speech Language Therapists Association, is a fellow of the American Speech Language Hearing Association, and has received an ASHA Editor's Award for a research article of the highest merit on not one, not two, but three occasions. Wow. Many of you would be very aware of Gail's research interests in the area of phonological awareness and reading success for children with speech and language disorders. You may also be aware that Gail will be travelling to Melbourne in a few short weeks to join us at our Speech Pathology Australia conference as a keynote speaker, and we are beyond thrilled about that. Today, though, she is joining me from across the Tasman. Thank you so much for joining me today, Gail. Oh, kia ora, Annika. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's lovely to join you on your Speak Up podcast. Thank you. Now, I don't know about you, Gail, but I am so looking forward to finally being able to attend a face-to-face conference again. Will this be your first international face-to-face event since COVID struck? Absolutely. And yes, we can't wait to get on the plane. It's uh, very exciting to be able to fly to Melbourne and uh, really looking forward to being in person. As you say, nothing replaces a good face-to-face conference where you can do all that wonderful networking and soak up the the fantastic presentations. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I know that this is definitely not your first trip to Australia. And in fact, I know you've got some very interesting links to Australia and also to Melbourne specifically. And I would love it if you could share these links with us. Oh, thanks, Annika. Well, of course, uh, professionally, I did my um, PhD at the University of Queensland back some years ago now, but um, under the supervision of wonderful Professor Barbara Dodd uh, at the University of Queensland uh, in speech and hearing. And that was really where I first started my journey on this passion about phonological processing and phonological awareness and how important it is for children's literacy development. And uh, lived in Brisbane actually for seven years and uh, worked there at Brisbane Catholic Education and uh, helped set up their speech language therapy services there. So uh, really strongly connected to uh, Queensland and to Brisbane. And then, of course, personally, my father is from Melbourne 
my late father. He died a few years ago now, but um, he was born and bred in Preston in oh, wow. uh, in Melbourne, and yep. uh, he travelled back to New Zealand after he married my mother. Um, and they lived in Christchurch, but he was always a very proud Australian. And uh, we were very fortunate growing up to have uh, numerous trips to Melbourne. And he was one of seven boys. Can you imagine? Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <Seven laughs> That's boys. a busy mum. <laughs> um, so all of the other brothers stayed in Melbourne. So we have lots of cousins and relations in Melbourne. So I'm very excited about a comeback and yeah. uh, visit with family as well. Absolutely. I hope you get to combine some of that personal uh, part of the trip as well as the professional side of the trip in a few weeks. That sounds amazing. Now, I know that um, your conference keynote address is titled Moving Beyond Our Borders to Inspire Educational Change. Um, I believe there will be a focus on challenging us to address the inequities in educational outcomes for children with speech and language disorders, which um, I am someone that works in the educational space and I see that every day. Um, I'm wondering what the current research is actually saying, though, about kids with delayed speech and language skills in preschool and where their literacy skills is taking them. Really good question, Anna Karen, and something I'm certainly very interested in um, and have been for many years because we know that as a larger group, uh, children that have speech and language difficulties, of course, are at heightened risk for later literacy problems. And uh, colleague Hugh Katz and his colleagues work out of Florida uh, some years ago suggested they might be as at risk as uh, as many as four or five times more likely to have reading problems uh, than children that don't have speech and language difficulties. Mm. And and also in, with the longitudinal study in Australia with uh, Sharon McLeod and uh, her colleagues have also shown this longer-term impact that early speech and language difficulties can have on later literacy. And what the research from a number of studies is showing, typically they, of course, do improve in their literacy development and they develop literacy skills, but they're really kind of running at parallel trajectories to their Mm. peers without uh, speech and language difficulties so that over time they're not catching up and therefore have this longer-term disadvantage. And that's where the inequities come in because we know that – Literacy is such, um, early literacy success is such a powerful protective factor for later life outcomes. And if if children aren't doing so well in their literacies, it can affect lots of other aspects of their social, their emotional and their healthy well-being. So, um, you know, it, it is something we have to pay particular attention to. But on the positive, we know that not all children that have speech and language difficulties will go on to have literacy problems. Mm. And that's where it's really important to um, think about what those underlying difficulties are in their um, speech or language uh, areas so that you know, if they're showing more difficulties with accessing an underlying quality phonological representation or abstracting the rules around speech, then they're more likely to have literacy problems because those same underlying phonological processing problems will pop up when it comes to decoding written mm, words. Mm, and, of course, mm. some will have a genetic risk factor for dyslexia or they'll have poor phonological awareness. So there are certainly a number of risk factors there and it's really uh, the space we're moving more into is thinking about how can we turn that around and look at what is facilitating success and what does success look like for these young mm. children so that we can focus on 
those aspects that we know will enhance their chances at becoming really proficient at literacy. Mm. And things so what, like their yeah. underlying phonological awareness. Sorry, I jumped in there. No, that's okay. You're answering the exact question that was in my head, I can tell. <laughs> yes. So, you know, a, a, a strong protective factor is if they've got really good phonological awareness, um, good letter knowledge. Uh, if they're developing those early print concepts at preschool and uh, uh, having that language-rich environment, you know, they're getting proficient at vocabulary learning and oral narrative skills. All of those early skills we know are important. We have to really focus in on and make sure that quality of teaching and that intensity of teaching is there um, Mm. to help them get these skills. And it's really Mm. exciting to be working in this area because actually you can get um, change quite quickly. So it's really rewarding for teachers and speech language pathologists to uh, to be supporting these skills because we, we know what to do, really. We've got lots of research evidence about effective practice, but it's really having that um, quality teaching and intensity mm. of teaching. And it really um, shows just how important our consultative role is in that space. Um, often we get these little ones in preschool and we're doing that one-to-one clinical work with them but it's so important isn't it to be actually liaising with that teacher so that these skills that you're talking about are happening not just in our clinic room with that little one but in all of the or particularly their educational environment in preschool so that it's um, supporting those skills more holistically is that is that right? Absolutely critical, um, Annika, because as you've said, it's got to be widespread because they've got to get lots and lots of practice. Just having mm. a small therapy session in isolation yeah, it's just not may help it. develop some cognitive skills, but it's not going to get that impact that we need to have more mm. sustained, um, to work on more sustained literacy achievements. Mm. So working closely with, with teachers in strengths-based ways and collaborative ways is absolutely uh, vital. To, mm. to make the difference and to see that change that we're looking yeah. for. And I've always found teachers in that preschool space very open to this kind of support too. Um, I think they know a little bit about things that they can do, but we can certainly bring a whole lot of um, extra bits and pieces to their toolkits. And I've always found them quite a, a good group of people to work with. They're very open in, in adding that to what they do for all the kids that they work with, because it does, at the end of the day, benefit all their little ones, really. We're obviously most focused on our ones that we see clinically, but it benefits everyone at the end of the day. It certainly does. And yes, teachers are incredibly creative. So I'm always amazed where I, you know, offer a few suggestions or ideas and we talk about activities and then seeing those in in the early childhood or classroom settings where they've Mm. thought of all sorts of creative and wonderful ways to integrate it into children's learning. But at the bigger picture, it does require quite significant change um, to current practice sometimes because teachers need, what they've told us here in New Zealand is they need the time to really Mm. consult in meaningful ways, not grabbing five minutes at lunchtime Mm. or a quick chat after school. Uh, So in our projects, we have been lucky enough to have uh, embedded teacher release time. And what a difference that makes. Mm. You know, if uh, our our teachers are hugely passionate, but if they're trying to supervise children and uh, race around and do other responsibilities while talking to you as a speech-language therapist, it's not going to be the same quality interaction. But when they have that dedicated time to sit down and to plan and to really work things through with you, it's just a much more positive experience for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's the same from the speech therapist's point of view, having that quality time 
um, and not, you know, and heavy caseloads and, and work responsibilities can interfere with that. But one thing we've certainly learned is that good collaboration needs to have quality time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you see the outcomes from that time investment, you get a you get a big a bigger gain. Mm-hmm. So it's around investing time to ensure those relationships are built and and um, you've got that and uh, building trust as a partnership and as mm. well as time to plan the activities. Really, really important. Mm, so well said. I think we've all been there in those two-minute conversations with a kinder teacher on the way out the door whilst they're trying to manage their group at the same time. Yeah, not effective. That's yeah, very, very important point. Now, if I can move on from kinder into that first year of schooling, which is obviously when um, – literacy instruction, I guess more formal literacy instruction starts taking over for our little ones. Do you have any suggestions about um, the assessment tools that are really useful to use to monitor that early literacy development in that first year of schooling? Yes, another really good uh, topic to discuss because um, first it's really important to distinguish what the purpose of the assessment is for and as you've uh, in your question talking about monitoring assessments which will look Mm. quite different to more comprehensive types of assessments that you might use for a diagnosis or uh, often for funding to get support for children they'll need more standardized um, models of assessment but to monitor children's development in that early year what we're looking for um, are ways that teachers can engage in these assessments so that we can get data at scale. Um, they need to obviously be uh, helpful to guide teaching practice. They, mm. they need to be able to show teachers this is the next step for learning for this child based on this data. Um, obviously, if they're easy to administer, time efficient, as well as being valid and reliable. So there's actually quite a lot packed in there. Um, But in New Zealand, we've been developing the Better Start Literacy approach that I'll be talking about in my my keynote. Uh, And we're now, uh, we now have data on over 20,000 children that um, teachers have been uh, collecting this data because it's online, it's automatically uh, scored, it's um, uploaded with um, ethical approval for um, the data use in an anonymized way. Um, but more importantly for the teachers, uh, they are able to use these monitoring tasks very quickly. Children are just doing them on their iPads. It's a game-like activity and the data is automatically collected and scored for the teachers so that the teachers can see on a wonderful dashboard the children that have completed the task, their scores, how they went and can start identifying those next steps for teaching. Mm. And so that's across. For for early literacy, we really need to be monitoring areas of, of letter knowledge early phonological awareness, we include phoneme identity, segmentation and blending. Really important to have a a transfer task to see how they're using that in their reading and writing. So we use a uh, Mm non-word reading and spelling task. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have an online story retail task and worked with um, Professor Marlene Westerveld, a good Mm. colleague of ours up in Queensland, um, and uh, looking at how we've uh, um, developed a task that children can again collect their their oral narrative online, have that uploaded and analysed, and teachers can see the data um, within a very short uh, time period, so that's really useful for their teaching. 
Mm. Uh, but we also do have some connected text uh, reading, so we can see how those skills are transferring to connected text. Uh, and we um, are developing a writing assessment. At the moment, we just have been focusing on spelling, but we want to move that into writing. So it's really about having assessments for teachers um, that cover those foundational skills and letter knowledge and phonological awareness, but also move it into other aspects. And we know oral narrative is so important, particularly for um, comprehension, as well as their own communication skills and social development. Uh, so thinking of that broad range of assessments that can be mm. quite easily administered uh, that teachers can engage in. And then with our children with uh, that we focus on with speech and language difficulties, we then have got a snapshot of what that looks like to discuss with the teachers and then go in more depth as as required, depending on that learner's needs. But it, it gives us coming in as speech language therapists some immediate data that um, teachers have um, knowledge about. Uh, mm. And that does require, of course, some professional learning and development and upskilling. Uh, and that's all fed into the, the approach so that teachers mm. feel confident with the data. Do you have any suggestions about the timing of such assessments? I know at the school I work with, sometimes I feel um, some of this more formal um, approach where we do, I guess, a screener for all our preps happens right at the end of the year. And I sometimes think, oh, should we be doing this a little bit earlier in the year? Do you have some suggestions about the timing of that in the first year of schooling? Yes. Well, within our Better Start Literacy approach, we have the um, uh, teachers do this at baseline. So yep. that's really when they come into school, first few yep. weeks of school. Yep. And we call that simple baseline data. Um, if they've come in a bit of course, in New Zealand, our children start school pretty close to the day they're five, so they rock on up there. <laughs> and um, Within a few weeks, uh, they'll go through these tasks. But they're all designed to be fun, game-like tasks. In fact, the mm. teachers tell us they, they're lighting up to do the assessments, you know. <laughs> well, that's <And> good. <laughs> it certainly wants to be – they need to be enjoyable tasks, obviously, for our little ones because we don't want to put them off. Mm. Um, but then the important point for us is we do those baseline assessments, but we administer them after 10 weeks of the Better Start Literacy Approach teaching. So just after 10 weeks, mm -hmm. uh, then that's the critical point for us. We don't worry so much about the baseline because children are coming in from such diverse yeah, backgrounds. So different, so many different skills, yeah. Yeah, there's huge variability yeah. in the data. Uh, but what we're looking for is how quickly are children responding to that quality classroom teachers uh, teaching that's happening in our schools. And that's, that's the key point, really. So after 10 weeks, they run through the uh, the tasks again, they don't take long to do. It's not a, um, an onerous task. They're very uh, quick little tasks. And that's the exciting point because then the teachers can see, wow, look at the difference this teaching has made. And most mm -hmm. of the children now will have really shifted uh, their performance to proficiency level on those very early tasks like letter name knowledge uh, for a select group of letters and early phoneme identity. And they're showing really good progress. So that's very, very powerful because it's rewarding teachers for their efforts. We talk a lot about sharing the data in strengths-based ways, celebrating that success with whānau, that children's family, 
um, we use that term whānau for family and wider family. So it might be okay, aunts yeah. or uncles or grandparents or older yeah. brothers and sisters. It's a nice <laughs> encompassing term. Um, and really involving them in celebrating that success. Uh, and then, of course, they can quickly see, ah, now I've got a much smaller group, you know, just a small number of children now in my class that haven't picked up as quickly that's now where I need to focus more attention. And that's mm. just after 10 weeks. Yeah, so that's one term in Australia. One so term. the end of term one, yep. One term of teaching. Yeah. Um, and during that time, the teachers have been doing some quite intensive, you know, half an hour every four times a week of that quality literacy instruction that's um, building those skills for uh, decoding words and building their oral narrative and language skills. Um, and we have a staggered approach of how we integrate uh, roll out those assessments. So the language ones, which we know take longer mm. to uh, transfer, we do after 20 weeks. But the phonological awareness and the, the word reading and the uh, letter knowledge tasks, where you should get quick change. I mean, they're quick mm. tasks to learn. And for most children coming in with good uh, skills, they'll pick those up very quickly. And even for our children coming in with speech and language difficulties, we see them really starting to respond to this approach. Mm. But importantly, the teachers starting to pick up, ah, this, this child isn't picking up as quickly. Let me look into that a bit more. And, it, you know, that's when those conversations around other aspects like hearing and vision and health mm. and sleeping well and eating well all of those other variables we start to, to take a look at. So I think early earlier the better. Mm. But it, it's how we present that we certainly, we don't advocate, um, well, what a, turn that around. We do advocate using data in a really positive way. Mm. And I think particularly in New Zealand for a while we had national standards and there was um, quite a lot of negativity around that in terms of if children were failing national standards even after one year, what, how does that present? Uh, and it, it became a very negative discourse about how data was used. Whereas if you turn that around and start using data in positive ways to celebrate success because you've got the right tools to do that, then that uh, gets teachers really excited about the data. Mm. Mm, absolutely. Can I just clarify the um, assessment that you're talking about? That's a teacher that completes that, not a speech pathologist, or it doesn't matter? Uh, well, the model we've set up is that we have designed these for teacher use, yep. um, but Great. often they are supported by speech language therapists or literacy specialists within their schools. Mm -hmm. So in our model, we have that collaboration happening, that the class teacher is being supported by either a literacy specialist, and mm -hmm. that might be a learning support teacher, might be someone that covers a number of schools uh, to support with literacy, or it might be a speech language therapist. Mm -hmm. And that, that uh, um, the, the therapist or the facilitator is helping that teacher interpret the data, particularly for children that have, are going to have more challenges. So mm -hmm. it is a supported model. Uh, but yes, they're designed for teachers to have the control of the data. They'll see the data for all children. Uh, and we look to see how those, the speech language therapists are involved under the work of Dr. Sally Clendon here in New Zealand at ensuring all those tasks can be adapted for children that have complex communication needs and mm. are using alternative um, communication oh, systems. Oh, that's fantastic. That's so amazing. It's mm. really every child in that class um, has access to this. Has access to it. To, and yeah, yeah. 
really emphasizing the importance for for that because they all need these foundational skills and Mm. so if we're you know children with down syndrome children with autism we're looking for ways to ensure teachers have information on these foundational skills and how children are responding to the teaching and Mm. that's of course very much where our speech language therapists Mm. um, become a, a vital member of that team in supporting those learners. Yeah, I was going to ask because obviously when you do that um, monitoring at the end of term one and, yep, fantastic, the majority of the kids are doing brilliantly, but you're right, there's going to be that small group that's identified as needing, I guess, a bit of extra support. What is that extra support that's provided? Is it beyond what the teacher's providing in that classroom? Is that is there something extra or that student still remains obviously within the same program as the other students, but there's something slightly different happening for them? How does how does that look? Yeah, so after the 10-week mark within the Better Start Literacy approach, that's when we would suggest a more small group intensive teaching. So right. yep. a classic response to teaching framework. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they go into tier two. That might still be delivered by the class teacher. So they'll mm-hmm. have lesson plans, um, uh, again, with support from a literacy specialist or a speech language therapist, but with the class teacher largely uh Uh, teaching those small groups within their um, small group reading sessions so the other children might be engaged in other activities while they work with uh, four or five readers in a more intensive way or uh, a literacy specialist or a learning support teacher might come in and support that. Mm, mm. Uh, So it depends, uh, that's why we call it an approach because it really depends on the school community, resources available, um, how the speech language therapists are supporting a particular school, uh, what their role is uh, and their time of course um, available to be able to do that. So it depends on, we have We actually have a number of specialists. We have resource teachers for literacy. We have resource teachers for learning and behaviour. We have literacy learning support coordinators, speech language therapists. So there are a number of professionals with skills to support. uh, And we'd love more speech language therapists to get involved because we do feel they have that specialist knowledge, uh, Mm. particularly in linguistic knowledge. um, But also... uh, scaffolding learning and um you know breaking learning down to smaller pieces of learning to really Mm. support that success is um a skill sometimes I think as speech language therapists we take for granted yeah absolutely (laughs) just how to adapt on the moment yeah and uh scaffold because we know we we that's an area we really put a lot of support in for our teachers how to adapt a task so it can be easier or harder uh, for for the learners in their group, but mm. I think which you're right for a teacher can be really hard in the moment to do that without stepping away and having a think. But um, yeah, I do think speech pathologists we are quite good at being able to think on our feet a little bit and quickly change a task. <laughs> exactly, and I think uh, with our clinical practice working more in, in an individual small group yeah. space, we're used to that and also used to smaller steps of learning because Mm. often our children have really complex Mm. needs so we know how to break tasks down so that children experience success and it's those types of skills that we bring to the team I think that are really important Mm. uh, in that first year of learning so that our children are experiencing success. Mm. And so does the monitoring assessment then get completed towards the end of the year as well? 
Yes, um, the teachers can do that as often as they like. What we recommend, because okay. they have complete control over that, but what we recommend in the data we upload is at, at baseline, which is usually school entry, uh, after 10 weeks, and that's mm-hmm. a really important point to direct further teaching. Then for those that go into more intensive tier two for another 10 weeks, they would re- redo the assessments again at 20 weeks so mm-hmm. that they can see the benefits of that small group teaching. Yep. And then all the children get them towards the end of the year at about yep. the 30-week mark. Um, our school term is 40 weeks. So yep. you know what like you know what uh, schools are like at the end of the year with all the Christmas parties. To yeah, a little crazy. <laughs> um, yeah. So we make sure we get the assessment in well before all of that uh, crazy Christmas period hits and teachers get super busy. So, But also it allows planning then for their next year. Um, mm. So we, we do that at about 30 weeks, 10 weeks out from the end of the year so that they've got a good idea of um, – what that uh, teacher might need, uh, what that child might need in the following year. So they can yes, set yes. that up for success again with the teacher if they know who the teacher is for their second year. Yeah, it sounds amazing. Now, what tips would you have? Because um, I know sort of you're speaking in New Zealand that there are times when a speech pathologist may not be a resource that a school can access. Um, and the same happens here in Australia. But if there does happen to be a speech pathologist um, at that school, for instance, what tips would you have for speeches in regards to the best ways to collaborate with teachers? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, we come from a very strengths-based approach. So, um A great way to engage in collaboration is always to focus on the positives first. And um, that just sets up the the strong relationship. And that's that's where having data to share together is great because the speech therapist can come and say, oh, what an amazing job you've done as teaching. Look at all these children that are doing so well in your class. Or, um, you know, look at what this child has learned from last time I visited. So it, it is remembering that, you know, our teachers are... Uh, doing such an amazing job, often under quite challenging conditions. With, yep, very. Um, particularly in COVID, gosh, they've just been heroes in, in many <laughs> ways, keeping families and children engaged. So they need that positive uh, affirmation uh, that what their efforts are uh, realising gains. Uh, so that's always our first step. And we talk a lot about um, it the Better Start Literacy approach for the same for teachers to be thinking about how they engage with whānau and their families and other professionals. You know, when we come from what's working well to start with, it sets up the conversation positively. Uh, so that's that's a really key part. And then, of course, it is um, looking – our approach was very much co-constructed with teachers in terms of its implementation – because to have change, it has to be realistic. So, uh, you know, we sat down and said, well, we do need intensity. Uh, but we sat down with our teachers and talked about what could that look like for your teaching environment? Um, because there's no use saying you must do something five days a week when that's just never going to happen. Mm. And that's why we ended up on four half-hour sessions um, a week, because we said to teachers, there's always got to be at least one day when things go crazy or yeah. things are happening. Yeah. And we didn't want them to be under pressure, always catching up, or oh, I'd have to do an extra session because that would always be happening. <laughs> so trying to be realistic, but talking through that with the class teachers, you know, what could work? 
um, this is our challenge. We've got to increase the intensity of this teaching, but what might be uh, feasible? And then it was around with community leaders and principals talking about what resources they have in their community. And that's when, you know, we discovered, um, well, I guess we knew, but we have lots of different professionals um, helping out. So thinking about how you can use those talents differently and if the speech language therapist can only get there for um, a short, you know, periodically, uh, what advice will be the best for them to be able to offer the team and what can be happening in other spaces with others um, supporting. So it's really thinking about that team approach mm. and how, valuing that we all bring unique unique knowledge. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and teachers have uh, their expertise, of course, in teaching and understanding and working with such a diverse group of, of young children. So I think... Um, that relationship, as we've known for years, but in practice, it I think it does come back sometimes to time because mm. you know what it's like. If you're feeling rushed yourself and you're on the run and you've got a few more appointments to get through, you're much more likely to close that down and not spend the time building that relationship. Mm. Mm. And that can be interpreted in different ways that might not be as helpful. So that that's the busyness yeah. of the day. And that's yeah. where I, I mean, sometimes it requires systems level change. We have to really value that part of our profession to say building relationships is a key part of what we do. You know, we're about communicating. Mm. <laughs> this, is, this is this is our our mahi or our work. Um, so that takes time, and good communication, as we know, takes time. So it needs to be factored in to our workloads, and often mm. we factor in the half hour session with the child without thinking about, well, what about the half hour I need to sit down and have a cup of tea with the family or the half hour I need to spend um, when the teacher's available after school or mm. is there funding at the systems level to free up a group mm. of teachers to spend an afternoon with me where we can co-plan and co-construct? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because we underestimate how powerful time is in building those relationships and we get um, in systems where we're accounting for every half an hour that we're working mm. um, thinking about just working with the child rather than that wider context so mm. I think as a profession we need to advocate very strongly for what's involved in commu good communication skills mm. and um, particularly coming from our Māori and Pacifica leaders and our researchers, that face-to-face -face contact, time, being seen in the school, being part of a community is what builds that trust. Absolutely. That trust will allow you to be invited in to work more intensively and for for people to get around and support um, the work that you're, you're, you're doing with the child and the family. So... Uh, building relationships is is number one. Building that mm. trust, and uh, there's there's no way around it. It takes time. Absolutely. <laughs> but, um, as much as we try to parcel things out into time boxes and calendars, it often doesn't work, and it certainly doesn't work in working with Indigenous communities. So we just yeah. had a lovely example. Actually, our team here in Christchurch were invited into. Um, a local Samoan community and, and the church um, launching a new literacy initiative with them. And we've been developing this over several months. But for the launch, we launched that in their church community uh, and the literacy approach actually will be used for their part of their Sunday school where oh, they wow. have their, 
their young children come in and one of our researchers who is a Samoan researcher in their community uh, will be looking at um, enhancing their skills um, through their Sunday school program, which is really unique. But um, it was a wonderful occasion to, you know, to get out and about and yeah. be a part of the church community. And, and the Reverend uh, joked to our team, he said, oh, do feel free to come along on Sunday. Just turn up a little bit earlier and I'll baptise you all first. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> but, um, oh. but that's the sort of thing that takes takes a lot of time and doing time, relationships. Yeah. But to the point, you know, of course, we always share kai, share food with them afterwards. It's a whole evening event. It is not something you go along, you turn up for 10 minutes, mm. launch a program and say, yeah, right, that's right. I'm to work with you, see you later. You know, it's having yeah. that time to build the relationship, have, sit down and have food with them, get to know the community. Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, factoring that into the whole program, it's not an additional extra. It's just part of what you do for that good outcome. Wow, that is just so, so fascinating, Gail. Um, I honestly cannot wait to come to your keynote address in a few weeks' time and learn a little bit more about your program. It just sounds fantastic and certainly something, um, given I do work in an educational setting, that oh, I'm so keen to explore um, with my school afterwards. I think it um, just sounds amazing. Oh, well, thanks, Annika, and we're certainly looking forward to it. Uh, the co-developer for our Better Start Literacy Approach, uh, Professor Bridget McNeil, is coming along with us to, to Melbourne, as well as Dr Amy Scott, uh, who's been very instrumental in um, helping us facilitate the online assessments. Uh, Lisa Furlong, who's working with us yeah. here. She's a Melbourne girl, I believe. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> we're very excited to have Lisa join our team. She's joining us and one of our lead national facilitators for the approach, Nicole Plummer from up in Auckland, who's um, a very experienced speech-language therapist, some of you will know, is also coming over. So we've – oh, and Dr Sally Clendon so from Massey University. So uh, we're really excited to uh, be joining you. And look forward to seeing everyone in person yeah. and having a good catch up. I know. Well, we cannot wait to welcome you. And for those of you that are listening, um, if you have not registered for our conference, it is not too late. Just head to the Speech Pathology Australia website and you will find all the registration details there. Um, have a super safe trip across. I know travel is a little tenuous at the moment, but I hope you all have a safe trip across to Melbourne, Gail. And we really look forward to seeing you in a few weeks' time. Lovely. Thanks so much, Annika, and we'll see you soon. And thank you so much uh, to everyone for tuning in and supporting our podcast. We will be back with another interesting conversation next Wednesday. Have a great week. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast where all good podcasts are found and make sure you share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for tuning in. And bye for now.